invite you to turn to Acts chapter 9. We are picking up in the middle of an episode. I originally intended to preach verses 1 through 19 last week, but as I began studying for this entire passage, I began to realize that I felt there's just too much in these verses, and I didn't want to skip over some things, so I broke it up. We are looking at what some commentators have called, and I agree with them, likely the second biggest event in the book of Acts, namely the conversion of Saul. And the first event was Pentecost Sunday in Acts chapter 2. However, Saul's conversion is monumental in church history. He is the second biggest contributor to the New Testament, the first being Luke. Uh, Saul is also the apostle to the Gentiles. And I ended last week with this idea that because Saul is such a, such a historically significant figure, we might be tempted to look at this dramatic conversion and, and say, well, God obviously had a special purpose for him. So, of course, God's going to go to these dramatic lengths to get Saul, right? As if, if everybody had been met by Jesus resurrected, everybody would be saved. If everybody was given a chance like Saul, rather didn't seem he had a chance, it seems resistance to God really had no opportunity in this situation. We might be tempted to think that Saul's conversion is in a category unto itself. And I, and I shared some words actually from Saul himself saying quite the opposite. Saul knows a God who desires all people to repent and wants all people to be saved, and has a grace that is accessible in Jesus for all people. And Jesus is seeking out everyone. That was the end of last week. And where Saul ended last week is in blindness, being led by the hand into Damascus, a city where he originally intended to hunt down more Christians and lead them in chains back to Jerusalem, likely to unjustly try them, so that they might be executed, but now he's blind. And he was met by the very Lord he was persecuting, and now things are changing. So I invite you to stand with me one more last time, if you're able to, as we finish this episode in Saul's conversion. We're going to be reading verses 10 through the beginning of 19, stopping in the middle because it feels logical to do so. Beginning with verse 10, it says, Now there was a disciple... At Damascus named Ananias, the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named, or a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have been, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to come before your word as if it's something ordinary, because we know by faith it's something extraordinary. We know that you have used your word to convict the hearts of many, whether it be convicting them to turn from sin and trust in you for the first time, or to turn from sin where we're at in our walk with you, and to walk deeper and more holy before you, empowered by your Spirit. So, Lord Jesus, please have complete rule and reign and say what it is that you desire. Would you please soften our hearts? We invite you to go places we haven't let you in a long time. And we invite you to do a work of redemption in our hearts and our lives. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, since we were looking at a meeting between Christ and Saul, I had framed our points this way, that here was a man opposing Christ, who then encountered Christ, and then both uh, Saul and the men he was with were blind, or blind to Christ. But now we will be continuing with just two more points today, assisted by Christ, and so that Saul and Ananias in different ways are assisted by Christ, and then spiritually we see Saul resurrected by Christ. And I want to say this is what happens when Christ meets us or any unbeliever or non-believer. The Bible is very clear. In fact, Saul himself writes for us this fact that really it's this simple, it's this black and white that if you are not with Christ or if you're not in Christ, you are opposing Christ. He writes the church in Rome, Saul does, and he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Prior to salvation found in Christ, Saul tells the Ephesians that we are by nature children of wrath, wrath meaning punishment, reserved by God for who? Anybody who has not put their faith in Christ. Our sin separates us that much. It's not that we are just indifferent to God. And while some folks might just say, well, I've never gotten to know Him, I'm not familiar with Him, I just haven't given it much thought, Saul is saying... The Bible is saying that it puts us into a place of hostility with God. (laughs) Saul says at the beginning of Romans, namely chapter 1, that really nobody has any excuse to not know God. Creation itself should be a big enough testimony. Hey, there's something bigger than me at work here. Look at the creation. It's all in order. So we need an encounter with Christ. But even when... Saul encounters Christ, he's still blind, physically, but also spiritually. As in, what does this 
mean, right? When an unbeliever or non-believer is headed down one road and, and meeting Christ really changes everything, we might ask, where does one begin? What I love about Saul is that he's still going to Damascus. He was going to where his original intent was to do more damage to the church, but God even redeems that. For us, whether it's the first time we're saved or whether the Spirit awakens us one Sunday from a spiritual slumber, causing us to repent of sin and causing a holy hunger in us to be more like Him, to to mature in the faith, God can start right where we're at. God starts with Saul right where he's at. What else could he do? And so, assisted by Christ, both Saul and Ananias begin new chapters in their faith. Let's read verses 10 through 15 again, which says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands, lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Many of you might recall in the book of Acts in chapter 5, there was another Ananias who is now dead. And uh, though many authors in Scripture, I think of a guy like John, they don't always write their books necessarily chronologically as they do thematically. Even so, I believe Ananias in Acts 5 and 9 are without a doubt different people. And as I just read these verses, I'm going outside of my notes, heaven help me. But as I just read these verses, I was thinking, so interesting in the passage about redemption that God uses people that need redeemed names. Ananias and Judas. We know that these are two names that are kind of infamous in the Bible, but here's God even redeeming names. We're not told how Ananias of Damascus came to be a disciple. But as I mentioned last week, the Christian population in Damascus could be a result of some devout Jews witnessing Pentecost and returning back to Damascus. It could be that the very persecution that began with Saul in Acts 8.1 after Stephen died, it resulted in Jews leaving Jerusalem under persecution and maybe some of them went to Damascus and made disciples. Whatever the case, we find that just as God showed up to Saul who was on his way to persecute the church, so now God shows up to Ananias. The interesting thing is, did you notice the reception, the difference between the two? Because here we have Saul knocked off his feet. Only His only few words are of humble submission. Who are you, Lord? What must I do? But then Ananias here, well, hold on a minute, God. Have you met Saul? <laughs> have you been watching the news? Do you know what he's about? And I begin to think that in any relationship of teacher versus student, sometimes that happens. The first day of school in any class in public school, it appeared to me that most students seem to obey their teacher to begin with without question while they try to fill out their teacher. What can I get away with? How strict are they? How lenient are they? Kids and parents, right? 
There was like a honeymoon season of at least two hours when Calvin began communicating with us that there was never any disagreements, (laughs) just obedience. For Saul, what was he to do? He was blind. He was just informed by the very God he thought he passionately defended but was actually persecuting. He was just informed, you're persecuting me. So Saul knew right then and there he had a, a job to do, that he had to rethink everything he thought he knew about God and about Jesus. For Jesus and his disciples, he revealed to us that we are his friends more than his servants in John fifteen fifteen, Jesus revealed that he is the God of the book of Psalms that can be lamented to, talked to, and spoken to in a direct and in a, even in a transparent manner. The Jesus Ananias talked to is the same Jesus that the disciples John and James requested to sit on his right and on his left or to bring down fire on a city and consume a village, I should say, because they weren't being hospitable. So the point is, is Saul's quick obedience versus Ananias questioning does not reveal to me maturities in the faith as in different parts of the journey, different parts of their relationship. While Saul seemed to show obedience, I believe that Ananias shows love and true friendship. Though he asks silly questions, that reveals he really hasn't thought it through. Of course, God knows who Saul is. Nevertheless, it reveals a freedom that Ananias feels in talking with God that I hope we all have, that freedom. A freedom to dialogue, to question, to mull over and to discuss. God wants to talk to us. Does that make sense? And so Ananias is to go to a street called Straight, a street that still exists, a very famous street in Damascus. This is actually from 1900. I just like that picture better than all the modern ones. (laughs) But this is the street that he was supposed to go to. And he's supposed to go to the house of a guy named Judas, a very common name back then. And so he's supposed to basically assure Saul that indeed it has been God communicating with him. Saul is expecting all this to happen for Ananias to come and lay his hands on him. I want you to hear how these two things are coming together. God's providence and man's responsibility. See, the fact that Ananias had the freedom to discuss this over with Jesus, and then Ananias willingly went. We also see the great mission that God has in store for Saul, verse 15 Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. In the book of Galatians, where Saul gives some of his background, we heard it last week, he was describing his life as a persecutor, but then he speaks about his conversion using both the language of God's providence and man, in this case Saul, his responsibility. Galatians 1, 15 through 17 says, But when he had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Do you hear God's providence and all that? He set Saul apart before he was born. He called him by his grace. He revealed his son to him that he might preach among the Gentiles. This is all God acting on Saul. This is all God operating outside of Saul, but influencing Saul. But then we hear Saul has some responsibilities here, some freedom to act as we continue in verse 16. 
He says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Well, did God tell him to do that? Well, that was Saul's prerogative. Some might say, why aren't you doing right now what God wants you to do, Saul? Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. The point I'm making here is that God's providence goes hand in hand with man's responsibility. Saul knew he's being called here. He's going to be told by Ananias, but Saul is also going to take some ownership. And he's going to go the way he decides to go about it. No doubt, I assume, prayerfully and maybe moving as he feels the Lord direct him. Nevertheless, the Lord's leading in Saul's life in the details comes from a yielded spirit on the part of Saul. I'll be honest and tell you that I have a tendency to believe so strongly in God's sovereignty and His providence and His ruling over all things that sometimes that I can shirk responsibility. That I, I can begin to believe, well, whatever happens will happen. When the Apostle James, I believe, brilliantly marries these two concepts in James four thirteen through 17 he says, Come now, all you who, who say, today and tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, there's providence, there's sovereignty, we will live and do. There's man's responsibility, man's doing this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, do you see how it's dependent on what we do? For him it is sin. What this means for me, if I feel God is calling me to something, I don't just say, okay, in your time, to the point that I don't make plans. You and I have to live into the callings we have. We have to use effort in the tasks that we feel God lays on your heart. Yeah, I, yes, I do believe that time and decisions and opportunities are windows and God's got certain timelines, but let us never use the reality that God is at work and God will lead us and guide us, let's endeavor to not let our beliefs in those matters cause us to shirk action on our part. To cause us to think, well, if he wants it, he's going to drop it in my lap. When God showed up to Abraham to call him from a foreign land, Abraham had to exert effort and tell everyone he knew that a God that was new to him and his people was calling him to leave. When God showed up, to a burning in a burning bush Moses had to explain wonderful conversations I'm sure that a burning bush was telling him to free an entire race of slaves from Pharaoh <laughs> and he had the audacity and the guts to approach Pharaoh of Egypt with that news now I can go on but you get the idea my point for the long rabbit trail is that Though we are seeing God acting in great supernatural providential ways, it happens because Saul and Ananias are also responding in obedience. Without Ananias, there may be a very different Saul. It makes me ask the question, what does your obedience to God mean for someone else? You ever think about that? What does my obedience mean for my wife, my kids? What does my obedience mean for my neighbor, my family members? Ananias' obedience had great ramifications for Saul. 
We come to the latter half of our text today to find the beginnings of Saul's own resurrection because of Jesus' resurrection. Verse 16 picks up the, the last words God has to say, God has to say about Saul to Ananias. Verse 16 again says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. Often in the church, pastors and believers witnessing about Christ have appealed to eternal life to bring folks to salvation. It's interesting to me that God doesn't show up and say, Saul, Saul, why do you want eternal life? It's interesting to me that God doesn't say to Ananias, I want Saul to avoid hell and to come to heaven with me. Rather, God convicts Saul that he is persecuting me and that Saul is an enemy of God. And then he lets Ananias know, I saved him for these things. And now he says, and he will suffer for the sake of my name. There's an invitation. Being a believer is hard. We know for Saul, and what Jim read for us today, that the many things he faced, he faced it all, Saul says, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Being a believer in Christ is unique. Among the many upside-down, unique, exclusive aspects of Christianity that makes it the only true way to God is the idea of suffering. Some say religions, some religions say that suffering is to be avoided at all costs. In fact, some religions are designed to make one aspire to avoid suffering. Buddhism tells you what you need to do to get rid and to do away with suffering. Hinduism entices folks to live lives that will produce in your next life a life of less suffering. Some religions tell you that suffering is due to God's punishment. Christianity teaches this very bizarre thing. Suffering produces character. Suffering can be absorbed and redeemed. It's not useless, it's painful, but it's productive. It's to be expected and it's not even always deserved. Nevertheless, it will all be used even in this life for the betterment of either you or others or both. We see this so clearly at the cross, do we not? Jesus did not deserve what happened and it seems by far the greatest suffering of any human being whatsoever. Nevertheless, He endured and with His great suffering He produced great redemption. He saved souls. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In Christ's suffering, we are brought to God, and we can put to death in the flesh the deeds of the flesh, but be made alive in the Spirit. But Peter also says something rather uninviting in his letter. It is, of course, echoed by Saul and Jesus himself, but Peter says it this way back in 1 Peter 2, 20 and 21. He says, 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Do you hear that? Peter is essentially saying if you suffer, it's to be expected. In fact, you are to follow in Christ's example. He expects you to follow in his steps. He continues this idea in chapter 4, verse 13 and verse 16. But, but listen to what Saul himself says. Saul says in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. That is the church. But then he says to Christians, to you, in Philippians 1.29, he says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This is all over the Bible, but the point is, is God has called Saul to suffer for his namesake, and some might be tempted to see the irony that while Saul was once a persecutor of the church, he becomes greatly persecuted. Is that divine judgmental irony that God is inflicting? Not so much as it is easily the end of many who become Christ followers. Go to North Korea with your faith. It seems that someday, you know what, I I just read this past week actually about a church in Mississippi that was burnt to the ground because the people who didn't think they should stay open under quarantine laws, they were staying open under quarantine laws. See, we call people to Christ because yes, they're saved eternally and we call them because they can be saved from their sins and actually they can return to the life that they were made for, life in communion with God, life in His presence. But we also, when we call them, we are called them consequentially to suffering. But unlike other religions, which tries to avoid it altogether, Christ's way offers a life that absorbs, uses, and redeems suffering. Which is actually a good offering, because you're going to suffer no matter if you're a Christian or not. Might as well join a faith that uses it, right? God is being honest to Ananias when he calls Saul to suffer for his namesake. But the his namesake means half or more of Saul's known world at the time is going to be witnessed to. Christ comes to the Gentiles and he does so out of the suffering of Saul and the other apostles at the time. After telling Ananias that Saul would suffer, Ananias does his part. He obeys He does what God's calling him to do and he comes to find Saul at the very house he's staying at and he says, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. You gotta hear that. Because this is Saul of Tarsus. This is the, the Christian hater, the Christ persecutor, the church's enemy, the Stephen killer, and up until recently, the disciples of Damascus hunter. And Christ has met him. Christ has convicted him. Christ has softened him. Christ has changed him. And Ananias could have said anything, done anything. Ananias could have ignored God's call. Ananias could have done what we do, and that is reluctantly be about the work of Jesus with grumbling. (laughs) But Ananias enters the house. He lays hands on him, but not the harmful kind. He doesn't question Saul's genuineness, if that's a word. Rather, Ananias realizes that in this moment, God has said one thing to Saul. 
And as the body of Christ, is Ananias going to represent Christ as Christ is? With grace? Well, I'm supposed to love everybody. <laughs> with unconditional acceptance? With the mercy and kindness that Christ is known for? And Saul, just like any believer who feels the gate and the, the guilt and the weight of their sins when they realize that like Saul, they have been offending God, they have been persecuting God, they've been acting against His kingdom, they're enemies of God, they're children of wrath. But Ananias says, Brother Saul, in those words, Ananias says, You are forgiven. You are redeemable. Your past sins will not haunt you, but rather Christ has use for you. Christ has use for you, folks. How many of us think we don't have anything to offer? Saul was a blasphemer. Saul was a persecutor. The blood of Christ's body, His people, was on Saul's hands. And God used him. Don't give me your age as a reason that God can't use you. Don't give me your past. Don't give me your sins. Don't give me any excuse when God can use a man like Saul. He can and He will use you if you just obey. Amen? And laying His hands on him, He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Saul's been blind. He's been blind physically. And here he regains his sight. You know, it's not funny in those moments when you're blind. I'm not sure. I don't think Saul was laughing. I remember my mentor, Pastor Hunter, he got this horrible infection. When it seemed like in just days, he went from maybe his great vision to having 20% of his vision, and glasses wouldn't help. And I forgot what the infection was, how it was contracted, but I remember him seriously considering the ramifications. Is this going to keep going? Am I just going to be blind? Am I not going to see my kids grow up? Might not see again. Why is this happening? Well, prayer and healing, I forget how, but he's, he's, he can see again, doesn't even need glasses. Saul met the God he was persecuting and he was blinded, had to be led by the hand to Damascus three long days. Now, God told Ananias that he informed him that Ananias, that he informed Saul that Ananias was going to come and lay hands on him and he will regain his sight. But even so, Saul is going on quite literally blind faith until here Ananias is obedient to Christ, right? Did Saul ever say, Joe from Damascus, yeah, they're going to come to me and lay their hands on me because I'm such a great guy to them, God. <laughs> and then the miracle from every for every believer, from vile persecutor to new life, filled by the Holy Spirit, transformation in Christ can happen that fast. I wonder if some of you need to be transformed by the Holy Spirit today. Luke, our author, loves writing about the Holy Spirit. He tells us even in the Gospel of Luke how the Holy Spirit in Jesus had descended upon Him and how He is filled fully by the Holy Spirit or He's led by the Spirit, how He came somewhere in the power of the Spirit. Jesus explained how the Spirit of the Lord is upon Him to proclaim good news. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And my point is while you and I believe that the Spirit comes and resides in us and we're baptized in Him, 
Could it be that it's time for you to live into that Holy Spirit who is in you and you need to be transformed by Him today in a new way to operate out of His power? See, the Spirit fills Saul. Saul is baptized. He rises. He's taking food. He's finding strength. And the, the point is, is Saul is moving on in life. He's moving on in a different direction. He's returning to activity and do life in ways that he never intended when he came to Damascus. He's about to operate in the Spirit and not in the flesh. I don't know about you, but I see in this story that you and I are never beyond redemption. No matter how far in or down you think you are, it's never beyond redemption. Saul is a Pharisee of Pharisees. This means Saul has invested hours and hours in labors and persecutions and he's known, he's infamous, he's famous among his kind and he's infamous among the church. He's got a reputation and in our day and age you would say he's trending. He's winning at political party nominations. He's an up and coming leader. He's got grit. Don't cross him. Be leery. He's coming and when he meets Christ, all this building, this anticipation, this momentum comes to Christ and Christ redeems it. To where Saul's got plans for his life meets God's plans and God's plans wins. And in fact, God's smart enough and he's a redeemer enough to use even Saul's plans for the betterment of God's kingdom. Even the journey to Damascus, right? I was here to start arresting some Christians, but now I are one. (laughs) I guess I'll go to the synagogue and start telling those Jews like me to repent and accept Christ just as I have. You and I are never beyond redemption. Whether we be non-believers, we're thinking we're irredeemable, or believers horribly off track, friends, God could even make an alcoholic at the bar while he's drinking a Christian and lead others to Christ. I love this picture of Jesus in the Gospel accounts. It's what I want to close with. Lepers in Jesus' day were seen by Jews as unclean. Let's not touch them because they're contagious. Right? Everything... Everything they touch is just going to contaminate, so let's just put them in their own colony. They'll contaminate each other. Let's practice COVID-19 quarantine laws. Don't go near them. Social distance. Don't touch them. Don't let them breathe your direction. Ew. Jesus, time and time again, that guy, he's touching them. Like the Pharisees think Jesus is the three-year-old who's told not to touch the toe. He's touching them again. We told him not to touch them. That Jesus... Because it works backwards with Jesus. His holiness is contagious. His righteousness is contagious. His redemption is contagious. And while viruses and sufferings and sins and filth seem to swallow up everyone like an unstoppable flood, taking no prisoners, knowing no favorites, it comes to Christ. And Christ at the cross, it finds it's in there. It's absorbed there. And Christ changes everything He touches. Christ makes everything better. He redeems everything He touches so that even sufferings can be used for good reasons. Even sufferings that Saul faced. And so if you're asking, where do I start to serve Him in the muck that I have made myself? I dare say, start where you're at. Saul started serving God. In fact, God called Saul to serve right where Saul was going to Damascus to do more Christian persecuting. And Saul obeyed right where God called him. Because even at that point, he was not beyond redemption. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, I'm so grateful that in the Christian life, as Bonnie was sharing this morning before Sunday school, that we're called to community. But in our day and age, we live in a nation and in a culture where if somebody asks how you are doing, even if you're about to die, you say good. May it not be so in your body. Father, that we are here to help and love each other, that we rejoice with those who rejoice, we weep with those who weep. Some of us, I fear, came here. We may not be killing Christians yet, but we've sunk pretty far. Would you give us hope today that you redeem no matter what? That none of us are beyond your redeeming hands. That you call us out of the muck and mire and you say, even with all the junk you made for yourself, I want to use that for my kingdom. And I'm calling you to a mission right now. Father, would you help us to be obedient that we don't shirk our responsibilities and say, well, God's calling me today and he's going to make whatever I need to do fall on my lap. But instead that we would lean into you and say, I want to obey. What must I do? Sign me up. Where's the practical things that I need to do right now? And Father, help us to know that like you have forgiven Saul with blood on his hands from killing very people that you love and have saved, that you can forgive us of anything as well. That there's nothing that separates us from you. You've, you've taken care of that at the cross. Many of us have long things we've been struggling with. Father, make this the day where we give them to you. Holy Spirit, may this be the day where you do a new work in our lives where we even saw Jesus being changed and used by the Spirit throughout his life, would you do a work of grace we didn't expect today, but we know it's you. And Father, would you use that for your glory and for the good of others? And would we take you with us and would we do like what Saul does, going to the very places that we've been before to practice our sin, to instead practice life-giving and seeing others come to you because of the words we might say, because we know that there are words from you. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.